Okay. Whenever you feel like it, you right. can do your thing. We're aiming to do this with as little editing as possible, correct? Yes. All right. Let's hope. Let's hope. Yes. Fingers crossed. Hands folded. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, Jesus. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we have conversations about history, faith. Ah, we're going to have to edit <laughs> oh, that out. What was that's that? That's my email. Actually, that might be my small group telling me that we are meeting at... Yes, we are meeting at Boats at 5 to 5.15. Are you actually meeting in person? Yeah. That's kind of cool. My prompting, because I looked outside and I was like, that weather is glorious. It is really nice And I don't want to miss it. Yes, it is. It is. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear that. It is. It is. All right. Take two. Take two. Hello, and welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we have conversations about history, faith, ethics, and sexuality from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. graduate student who studies American evangelicalism, specifically the history of the movement. And I am Joel. I'm a PhD student studying philosophy, and I focus on social ethics, justice, and for most of my philosophical career, can I call it a career? Whatever. um, I focus on philosophy of religion and epistemology. Some fun words there. So today we want to discuss a really interesting statement that came out in the last, uh, seems like in the last two years, kind of came out, was developed. It's called The Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, developed by John MacArthur and signed by, I mean, thousands of people um, now. And it looks like you can continue to, to join the bandwagon, sign the statement, uh, supposing you agree with it. And so it's gaining, you know, some attention within evangelical circles. Christianity Today had an article come out in 2018 saying, John MacArthur's statement on social justice is aggravating evangelicals. Um, so that was interesting. But I'm sure a lot of people find it helpful. And I mean, when I look through it, there are a variety of things that I think, yeah, that sounds right. I like that. I'm on board with that. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, these sorts of statements are bound to provoke some, some disagreement and some discussion. And so that's what we want to do today is we want to talk about the statement on social justice and the gospel. Let me just give you a quick overview of what this statement is all about. So it's a compilation of 14 short affirmations and denials concerning topics like sexuality, complementarianism, marriage, racism, ethnicity, culture, the gospel of salvation, sin, and other fun-related topics. So according to the website, and you can visit this, uh, you can visit the website where all of these 14 different affirmations and denials occur. Um, Just look up statementonsocialjustice.com. And here's what they say. Quote, in view of the questionable sociological psychological and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads into Christ church, we wish to clarify certain key Christian doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word. Clarity on these issues will fortify believers and churches to withstand an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel, misrepresent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Specifically, we are deeply concerned that values borrowed from secular culture are currently undermining scripture in the areas of race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, 
and human sexuality. The Bible's teaching on each of these subjects is being challenged under the broad and somewhat nebulous rubric of concern for social justice. If the doctrines of God's word are not uncompromisingly reasserted and defended at these points, there's every reason to anticipate that these dangerous ideas and corrupted moral values will spread their influence into other realms of biblical doctrines and principles. And they go on to quote from Colossians 2.8, which says, Be careful that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So that's the heart cry behind this statement. It's trying to address what it thinks might be some very problematic aspects of social justice and tries to give a sort of biblical uh, evangelical response to all of this. And, you know, it's it's relatively popular. At this point, there are thousands of people, pastors, theologians, Christian influencers who have signed this statement. People like um, R.C. Sproul's wife is one of the signers, I think. And Paul Washer, the infamous fire and brimstone preacher of the early 2000s, has signed it and others. So, I think a lot of reputable and, and um, godly people have signed the statement. And so we're going to reflect on it today. And Maggie, one thing I'm curious about is, as a historian, what can you say about the influence that these sorts of statements have on the church? Um, I sometimes have this sense that, you know, people come out with these statements. And, you know, at the turn of the century, there were like a bunch of different statements that the that evangelicals were coming out with saying, this is where we stand, this is where we stand. And I sometimes have this sense that, People registered their theological opinions, and then nothing really came of it. So, I mean, what influence, what impact does this have on the evangelical church at large? Well, I think as a historian, they're useful in that they're signposts as to what matters uh, to evangelicals. Um, They can also be really helpful when they gain traction like this because it's a way of seeing where people fall in the divide. Right. So oftentimes there are debates that flare up around these sorts of things. I'm thinking back to the um, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy mm. in the early 1980s. That was a really important one because really that was one. when um, people were deciding, well, what are we going to do with the scripture right in the 80s? Like, what is our approach going to be? And so the more conservative seminaries, the more conservative churches tended, tended to agree with the statement and others that were more moderate around the line um, sort of drifted away. So it became and I don't want to say drifted away from truth or anything, but drifted away from kind of those tenets of inerrancy. And so it really is a way to um, sort of sift and winnow through what's going on. Um, And oftentimes, I think at a more individual level, it can become a way for um, people to draw a line, like for seminaries, for admission, um, for faculty members. Sometimes it becomes an issue if faculty members aren't willing to kind of get on board with these sorts of statements that can become a problem with them remaining at a certain institution. So we see that historically um, in the importance of these uh, statements. And they often recently have a tendency to focus on sexuality. Yes, I, I'm, I'm picking up on that trend as well. And so that was really insightful. And it actually makes me think too that these statements, like the statement on inerrancy, that um, they, they can have an impact even on like, like theological associations. Like I'm thinking about the Evangelical Theological Association. Mm-hmm. I was at the Evangelical Philosophical Association two years ago in Denver. Was it two years ago? A couple years ago in Denver, Colorado. And I remember I ran into Greg Boyd, who is not an inerrantist. Um, he, he's an infallibilist, and there's a, you know, a technical difference between those two. 
And he's like, yeah, I haven't been to, I haven't been to one of these conferences in a really long time because, you know, you have to sign onto the statement saying that you believe in inerrancy. And he's like, I just can't get behind that. But, but there's a historical like context for that. Like, and it started with the, the statement that you just cited. So yeah, these sorts of statements can actually have far-reaching effects into different sectors of the evangelical world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also an easy way for, say, a church um, to borrow the language from something like this instead of creating it themselves. So say yep. a church really wants to take a strong stance on um, biblical manhood and womanhood, right? That's their um, Nashville statement and their Danvers statement back in 1987. Um, they could just borrow that language and ask, you know, pastoral candidates, do you sign on? Do you not? Yep. And that can be a way of kind of taking that burden off their shoulders if they want to fall in line with these sorts of concepts. Good. So contrary to my earlier impression, these sorts of statements can actually be very important. And for today, we want to focus on just one of the 14 affirmations and, and denials. So the way this works is that there are 14 aspects of the statement and they start with an affirmation. Here's what we affirm as evangelicals. And then it goes into a short denial. Here's what we deny as evangelicals. And so we are going to focus on affirmation and denial 14. So it starts by saying we affirm that racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice, which must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God in all people. Such racial sin can subtly or overtly manifest itself as racial animosity or racial vainglory. Such sinful prejudice or partiality falls short of God's revealed will and violates the royal law of love. We affirm that virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Um, so let's just park on the affirmation. I, I mean, you know, real quick, what was your impression of the affirmation? I mean, I think there's a lot of good in this affirmation uh, because there is a tendency uh, in conservative Christian culture to hear racism and automatically think that's putting you in a camp. Like if you agree with a certain kind of racism, like you're automatically going to be in this quote unquote social justice camp. And there's been a lot of churches. And I think the statement is part of this movement to distance themselves from that. However, in this affirmation, they're being very careful to not distance themselves from the biblical concept of God's good, right? And what can be, right. um, damaging that in sin and pride even within the church and that is racism and that is evil and so i appreciate that they're calling that out and recognizing that as part of christian culture yeah and i wonder if what you were referencing earlier like the different kinds of racism like let's just distinguish between individual racism and then like systemic racism right and so the you know the classic concept is that racism is um, manifested by attitudes or beliefs in an individual, discriminatory or preferential uh, attitudes and beliefs um, that are morally problematic. But, you know, one of the big themes of contemporary social justice movements uh, for a while now has, is that there is systemic racism. It's embedded in structures and institutions within society. And it, it need not be that um, there are, you know, tons of individual racists running around and nevertheless there can be racial problems in a in a society because the institutions mm -hmm. have um, these embed these discriminatory policies and norms embedded within them 
So it, the, the statement clearly gives a hat tip to, and I don't mean that in a, in a light way, but it definitely recognizes that there can be such a thing as systemic racism. And I think that's really important for people to recognize. Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a reality, yeah. And particularly in that it names laws. I mean, if you look back, I think a lot of Christians have thought that the civil rights movement got rid of all of the kind of um, legal um legal segregation, legal uh, racism. And they're like, oh, no, no, civil rights took care of that. You know, the 1964 civil rights law, we're done. Um, And that's simply not the case. Um, We have plenty of scholars and plenty of uh, legal experts who are showing that there are a lot of laws that contain uh, racist motivation. And so I really do appreciate that affirmation for acknowledging that. Yep. Absolutely. And I don't mean that in a condescending way either. Like, oh, we scholars, we're so glad that the church has finally figured this out. It's more so I just appreciate the humility, right? I think yeah. that oftentimes when we're giving a statement of biblical authority, there's a fear to come across as humble, would mm. come across as like a biblical weak position. And they're not sure. doing that in this statement. And I think that shows a lot of wisdom. And so that's what I mean by that. Yeah, that's insightful. Okay, so let's turn to the denial part. They say, we deny that treating people with sinful partiality or prejudice is consistent with biblical Christianity. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism, or that individuals of any particular ethnic groups are incapable of racism. And I just want to park here and just kind of explain what they're, what they're getting at. I'll just repeat that. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism. And... They don't say this explicitly, but th- I think this is clearly a reference to a very popular view of what racism is, and it goes back to around the 70s, very popular view of racism in the social sciences, and it can be summed up in this formula, power plus prejudice equals racism, okay, and, and especially when the prejudice is of a racial sort. The same formula could be ap- applied to talk about sexism. You could say that uh, power plus gender prejudice equals sexism. So it's the P plus P equals fill in the blank racism or sexism. And the idea according to this view is that prejudice itself is not enough to make one uh, a racist. It's not enough to, to, to be racially problem. Like it's not an, it's not racism itself. Racism requires that the people who have the prejudice have positions of social power, right? They're the dominant group. They're the, they're the group with the most social power. And an implication of this view is that you could be prejudiced towards someone of a different race, but if you're the minority person and you're not, your, your group is not in a position, in positions of social power, then what you're doing isn't racism. It's just prejudice. It's not until you have power that you, that your prejudice turns into racism. And, you know, for different reasons, a lot of philosophers find that view of racism problematic it seems to be like too revisionary. It departs too far from the sort of ordinary conception of racism, according to which if I have a prejudiced attitude towards you or I treat you in a way that's unfair because of your race, it doesn't matter if I'm um, disempowered or not. I am acting in a racist way towards you. And so I think um, they're right to sort of, I think, put pressure on that view of well, racism. Well, in many ways, isn't that kind of because of that new emphasis that was the turning towards systemic racism? Like it has sure. to be about the system. The individual is yep. really much less important. And so with that new definition of racism, everything had to really be about systems rather yeah. than personal, like anecdotal, one-on-one sort of relationships. Yeah. 
And so I can certainly see why as a church, we're much more interested in personal, um, not more interested necessarily, but we are very invested in personal individual um, responsibility when it comes to these things. Yeah. And I mean, there's another advantage to the P plus P equals R formula for racism. You know, one of the criticisms of of, um, affirmative action, in particular the use of quotas, was that it was reverse racism. Mm -hmm. Right. That white people were being discriminated against in a way that was based on the race. And like, Mm -hmm. if that's not racism, what is it? And And the Supreme Court agreed with that, actually. Oh, interesting. Oh, absolutely. I did not know that. Well, and and you see, like, this language is powerful. Like, calling something racist, like, it means something. Like, and that's that's a, a, that's a, a reference you want to avoid if, if it's being directed at you. And so, one thing that sociologists did was they said, well, it's not racism if the people being helped by affirmative action are not the ones in power. They're the minority group. And so it's actually not reverse racism. So this view of um, racism actually did some work in terms of responding to the charge that affirmative action was reverse racism. And I mean, I don't think that affirmative action is racism. I actually think the Supreme Court I think they got that wrong. I think people who make that argument get it wrong, but I also don't buy into the P plus P equals R view of racism. Um, yeah. Any more thoughts about that before we move on to our key? I passage? mean, I, yeah, I think we want to um, talk about it, but I, the Supreme court has uh, like a very specific view as to what makes it racism, like just a strict quota and that's it. They are like, that is reverse racism. So, Oh, I see. Okay. So there has to be other factors as well. I see. Cool. All right. So there's a part of the denial here on statement 14 that I think really caught our attention. And here's what it says. We emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of scripture. Historically, such things tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel. Okay, Maggie, what are your thoughts and reflections on that? Well, I think, first of all, um, they're clearly talking about the social gospel movement, like historically speaking, uh, that their concern is that this new emphasis on social justice is going to be a resurrection of the social gospel movement from the early 20th century, which did actually lead many evangelical congregations and individuals who really got invested in the social gospel to um, de-emphasize personal conversion. Mm, Um, Some of them just no longer believed in the need for personal conversion and instead focus on the needs of the society. And so that complete sidelining of personal salvation for the good of the social gospel in a literal sense you can save society and that should be more of a concern than saving the individual and so they kind of see this movement headed in that direction and so they are cautious because of that so of course that's what they're nodding to there Um, but I I have and I, I can certainly relate to that I can see in some individuals in particular like that correlation happening that kind of emphasis and that concerns me um however I think one of the things that I see reflected in this denial is just a wrong view of what church is. Um, We have so emphasized the hour and a half that we spend together on Sunday morning that it becomes this commodity that cannot be shared. It, it, it needs to be, it's such a high value uh, target in many ways. Like you can't share that with anything else other than personal salvation because you don't have their attention any other time. Yep. 
And I think that that's just not a biblical view of what church is. Church is more holistic because it is us. We are the church. And so our entire lives should be a part of this. So it is absolutely um, important that information on social issues is a part of that conversation. Now, in the hierarchy of things, I don't think it is equal Mm. to salvation, but I do think it matters a great deal in a way that is de-emphasized in this denial. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm right there with you in a lot of ways. I mean, if we're talking about what is vital to the life and health of the church, it, it's hard to deny that that the salvation of a person out of sin and into the kingdom of God is very important, incredibly important. Um, but we're talking about the church here, and I think your point is absolutely right. Like the, the health and life of the church hinges on a number of things because the church has a certain vocation, a certain calling in society. And if we're not emphasizing that calling and leading people into a healthy way of living out that calling, then the life and health of the church is going to hurt. So I think we can agree that the gospel, um, as MacArthur and his, his, his group understand it, which is a popular way of understanding it, we can agree that that's very important to the life of the church, while also saying that social issues matter as well because these social issues intersect with the vocation of the church to be a salt and light in the world. So um, I'm not even sure that MacArthur and the group would disagree, but this statement, it feels like it's saying, it's it's trying to get at something about what we should be doing with our Sunday morning services and what topics we should be covering. And I, yeah, I worry that we're going to end up hurting the life of the church and the health of the church. Um, by not being holistic in what we're doing. And I think really one of the keys to understanding the heart behind this denial is that activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture. Mm. That idea Mm. that the church is supposed to be out there transforming a culture that isn't part of the church. Right. And I think that for many conservative Christians, um, they're there's a brokenness to the world that is not fixable and sh- mm. and it's a waste of our time to try and fix things for people who are not part of us. Right. So within the kingdom, absolutely. We need to be working on these things. Sure. And I think that gets lost in this denial that kind of like, yeah. but Hey, there is a, a place for it in our church, just yep. not this wider culture. Um, and they've just kind of only emphasized that they think it is a waste of time and a waste of resources and, and a distraction to emphasize this influence on wider culture. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would like a little bit more of uh, more nuance, more awareness that it is our calling to be very careful on how we live our lives within uh, the church. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think um, I would like to see that too from the statement. And and, and I think, and, I, and you know where I'm coming from. This is, this is just, this is just Joel's theological convictions, not the Methinks convictions or whatever. But I think that there's another response that one could make. It's, there's kind of like a dilemma here. You could say either social justice is not part of the gospel proper, or you could say social justice is part of the gospel proper. And just go with this first, this first part. You, you might say like, look, Social justice is not part of the gospel. It's an application of the gospel. It's an emphasis of the gospel. The gospel leads us to care about social justice because the gospel is an invitation into a new way of life. It's an invitation into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God cares about the transformation of the world. And again, you were, you know, you were referencing a view according to which maybe that's not necessarily crucial to the vocation of the church. Um, but on one view, you know, it is, and it doesn't have to be a part of the gospel in order to be important for the vocation of the church. So 
on this one of the dilemma, we can agree with the with MacArthur and others that social justice is not inherent or constitutive of the gospel proper, but nonetheless, it's part of the vocation of the church, and the gospel enjoins us to care about it. And so, we should be emphasizing it in our in our Sunday morning gatherings, in our in our small groups, and so on. We should be learning how to how to live out that vocation as image bearing stewards and and culture shapers. Um, on the other hand, you might go with maybe it's somewhat of a less popular view, maybe more recent view defended by people like N.T. Wright or J. Richard Middleton. And you say, you might say, actually, social justice is part of the gospel proper. Um, the gospel is the proclamation, not just that you've been saved from your personal sins because of the, the atonement of Christ, but that all of creation is now being liberated and redeemed from sin. And so the good news is that the inbreaking kingdom of God is becoming more and more the all-encompassing reality of the world. And, and so you could say, actually, um, what MacArthur in his, his, the statement is getting at is almost conceptually or theologically confused to say that social justice issues aren't vital to the health and life of the church as, as much as the gospel is, is it's like saying it, it's just getting things wrong because the gospel is like inherently about the redemption of the whole world on this second view. So I think whether you think the social justice is part of the gospel or it's just an application of the gospel i my, i think my view is that it's it's very important and vital to the life of the church and i mean you know there's a there's a relatively popular view of eschatology of the end times according to which what jesus achieved through his death and resurrection and ascension was the inauguration of new creation and it hasn't been fully brought it's like the, the door of history has been turned on its hinges so that the new age with its blessings and shalom, with its promises of wholeness for creation, that door has been opened to that reality. And Jesus made that available to us. And it's starting to like leak in and flood into the current broken fallen age. But it's not fully here yet. It's what theologians call the already, but the not yet. We live in that awkward time in between these two ages. And you know, I've been thinking a little bit about how it'd be easy to have what people call an overrealized eschatology, where you think, okay, Jesus, Jesus inaugurated the inbreaking kingdom of God, and now like we can totally make everything the way it was intended to be, as described in Genesis one, and like we can redeem all of creation, and that might be like just not where we're at in terms of salvation history, right? But on the other hand, there's like this more fatalistic view, which says like, we can't do anything. We can just kind of be like preserve ourselves within our, like, you know, within the church, but like culture is kind of like going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and I guess on one view I'm sympathetic to, it's, you know, neither of those views are right. We can't have an overrealized eschatology, but we can't also deny the impact of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for society and for culture, for the environment. There are cosmic implications of the gospel the inbreaking kingdom is here, and it means that there is hope and life and liberty for captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and that has social implications. And so it just, it sometimes feels like this statement requires you to buy a very particular view of the gospel and maybe even a particular view of eschatology. So it's just worth noting that, mm-hmm. even if you don't buy these other views I was describing. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot to unpack there and we won't go into it right now. But one thing I want to 
just confirm is that even if you do hold um, that latter view, right, that like the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I think really the bigger thing here is whether or not you believe like this is the realm of Satan. Like, is he really in control? Because if you believe that, then you can, you know, um, I can only think of really inappropriate analogies here, but like it, it's pointless um, to uh, fight against uh, Satan. Yeah. Um, and so you need to focus on simply rescuing people from his grasp. Like that's it. That's all you can do. Mm. And even in that, I would say there is still room for yeah. these discussions and for an acknowledgement of what is wrong. Because if you recognize that influence of evil in the systems that we're part of, um, acknowledging that that evil exists, that that doesn't harm the gospel message, right? Right. Because those people who are in that grasp, in that system, they feel that pain. Yeah. Like they're not going to like become any closer to Christ by you denying that that pain exists. And so I think even within that, um, that category of theology, there still is a space for really acknowledging and being aware and listening to the impact of racism on the church, on society, and not just ignoring it for the sake of the very important um, mission of evangelism. But I think it also hurts the mission of evangelism to do that. Awesome. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. If you have any thoughts or questions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we look forward to our next conversation. All right. See ya.